This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. This is the Science Podcast for May 19th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, building resilience into crops. Staff writer Eric Stockstead joins me to discuss all the tricks farmers use now to make resilient hybrids of crops like rice or wheat and how genetically engineering hybrid crops to clone themselves may be the next step. After that, we ask, when did we all start kissing? Trolls Pank Arvel is here to discuss the earliest evidence for kissing romantic style and why it's not likely that such kisses had a single place or time of origin. I've always found plant sex a little confusing. Some plants have seeds and pollen and they get together, although sometimes it does take a helicopter to get them together. Others have clonal propagation. You know, this is where a piece of the plant grows into a new plant. Other plants can turn an egg into an embryo. No male contributions needed. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Staff news writer Eric Stockstead is here to discuss a plant reproductive strategy that gets you clones of important crop plants like wheat and soybeans. We're not there yet, but we're going to talk about how we're getting there. Hi, Eric. Hi, Sarah. So what I described in the intro, this making an embryo from just a female egg, if you will, of a plant, is called apomixis. Is that how you say that? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a new word for me. What would you decide to write about this? Because it's a high-scoring Scrabble word, of course. Oh, God. <laughs> I bet it is. Got that X. Yeah. Yeah. So what else about apomixis attracted your attention? I was aware of it as something that plant breeders have long wanted to do. But the progress in making this happen has come in waves, fits and starts, as researchers have made progress and then found that further progress was really difficult. As far as I know, the last time that there was a story in science about this was more than 20 years ago. Wow, that's a long lag. It does sound like it's 
a problem in search of some new technologies, new techniques, new ways of thinking about biology. So let's talk next about why this is something that people are striving to accomplish. What would be the benefit of having apomixis, basically clonal reproduction, happen in crop plants? So the feature of clones are that they're genetically identical. That is true. That is literally the definition. So that's an advantage because what farmers want in their fields is every plant to be the same. That's really important, especially when we're talking about cereals, the grains that feed humanity, rice and wheat and soybeans and corn. For all sorts of reasons, farmers want corn cobs with a lot of identical seeds on them, and they want plants that grow to the same height. So uniformity is really important. And what could be more uniform than a clone? Breeders have lots of ways of getting uniformity. So wheat is very uniform, but wheat is not clonal. You don't have to have clones to do it. You can create very we call them inbred plants, right? But it's not necessarily a bad thing. What it means is, is that the genetics are very uniform. Now, when you're talking about clones, potatoes are a great example of a... Of a <laughs> Haven't we talked about how crazy it is to breed potatoes on here before? We have, right? But so potatoes, what they do is they chop up the potato into little bits with eyes, and those all grow up to be genetically identical plants. They're not reproductive clones. Yep. That's vegetative propagation. You're not going all the way back down to a single cell and then making a new plant out of it. You're saying, here's a piece of plant that's going to turn into a new plant. And it will regrow itself, right? Right. Yeah. So cloning is only one of the ways where you can have very genetically similar offspring. You can also do things like cross plants over and over until you get very uniform genetics being passed down. But what's missing here is this secret sauce called hybrid vigor. And you can only get hybrid vigor through sexual reproduction. Something that has been hugely important in agriculture, really in the last century, is a phenomenon that's mysterious called hybrid vigor. And hybrid vigor just means that you get a plant that is really robust. It grows well. It generates a lot of seed. It can be disease resistant. It can do better when it's stressed by heat or lack of water. So why is there this link between hybrid vigor and sexual reproduction? You know, what do we know about that? There are various theories for why this is the case. But what happens is clear. You have two inbred parents. Each parent is very genetically uniform. Think of them as purebreds. If you cross them, for some reason, when you combine certain genes of the male with certain genes of the female, you end up with a really optimal combination. Huh. And so that offspring, we call it the F1, the first generation, it's an F1 hybrid. And so you still get the uniformity that you want in the offspring, mm -hmm. but you have more robustness, more resilience. That's so interesting. Right. So a seed company will cross the parents mm -hmm. and have a field full of a first-generation offspring, and they'll collect the seeds of those offspring. They'll ship them off to farmers. Farmers will plant those seeds, and they grow into really well-performing plants. Now, in the field, 
those plants also will reproduce and create seed. That's the seed that you and I eat or the cows eat. The kernels on the cob that the farmers harvest, those now have their own genetics and they would, if you planted them, lose the hybrid vigor because they have reassorted all their genes between the mother and the father. That's kind of a dead end, if you will, for hybrid vigor. So you you make the hybrid, you sell the seeds, everybody's happy for one year, but the next year, all that progress is lost. And it's not actually always easy to make these hybrids. It depends on the plant. It depends on the, on the shape of the crop. So for corn, picture corn and you're growing in the field in your mind's eye, and you might see those tassels. Those have the pollen on them. Corn is relatively less difficult to create the hybrid seed. You remove the tassels from certain plants, and those plants now will only have egg cells. So this is now one of the parents, and you make sure that it can't produce its own pollen. So it can only receive pollen from another plant, the father. I wouldn't call that easy. That still doesn't involve a helicopter, though. No, 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 no. Helicopters are the extreme end. With hybrid corn, you do it, it's relatively easy, says the guy who's never done it. (laughs) You go out into the field and you cut off the tassels from certain plants so that you can make the hybrid seed. So classically, in corn-producing regions where the seed is made in the United States, high school students would work in the fields to cut off these tassels. You can kind of say, these are, the, these are going to be this half and these are going to be that half. And we're not going to let anybody self-pollinate. We're going to get that hybrid that we want. What about um, wheat or rice? Which one is the helicopter? The great thing about corn when you're doing this is that it's a large plant with large structures, right? Large anthers that are bearing the pollen. Rice is another story because it's got tiny little flowers. There's no way to go out in a field and remove the pollen from the plants that are going to be bearing the hybrid seed. You need another strategy. And that's complicated, surprise, (laughs) but just suffice it to say that you've got one parent growing in the field in long strips and another parent growing in the same field in long strips. And you need to get the pollen from one plant to the other plant. They've found a way after long periods of research to create a plant that won't have its own pollen. So you need to get the pollen from the male plant, from the father, to the receiving plant that will generate the hybrid seed. So in the southern United States, this one company that really produces the hybrid rice seed, they use helicopters. The helicopters fly over low over the fields and they're blowing the pollen from the male plant into the receiving female plant. Wow. You know, this isn't in the story, but hybrid rice was first developed in China in the 60s and 70s. And they're experimenting now with drones. But traditionally, you'd get the pollen from the male to the female by going into the fields and beating the male plants with sticks or dragging a rope across, right? So really, it's taken a lot of effort to create hybrid rice seed. Yeah. Well, let's take it to biotechnology now, I think. So some plants actually do apomixis naturally. It's what they do. It's their method of reproduction. And the biotechnology folks are trying to basically take that process, figure out what molecules are involved, what pathways are involved, and add it into crop plants. And so we don't need 
helicopters and high school students to make these hybrids. So where do they start? What plants can we see that do this apomixis themselves? There are about 400 different species known throughout the plant kingdom. The one you and I are most familiar with is dandelions. Yeah. But really, you know, it's not in any of the major agricultural crops. The benefit of having this clonal reproduction is that after you cross the parents, that favorable genetics, that combination that gives you the hybrid vigor would clone itself. Every seed would then have exactly the same combination. So you wouldn't get this reshuffling from sexual reproduction, right? So you could essentially fix that hybrid vigor and the plant would stay the same generation after generation. So what genes did they find in these naturally occurring apomixis plants that might be helping with this process, might be able to jumpstart this for other kinds of species? When you think about recreating apomixis in a plant that is normally sexual, like our crops, there are two main steps. The first one is that you want to create an egg cell that has exactly the same chromosome numbers as the mother. In sexual plants, that's not what happens. In sexual plants and in humans, what happens is that the egg cell and the sperm cell, both of these gametes, they end up with half as many chromosomes as the parent. And the sperm and the egg, when they meet up and become the embryo, they combine their chromosomes and that's how you end up with the same number of chromosomes as the adult. Yeah. And we're not saying the simple number two here because some of these plants have a lot of copies of their chromosomes. Let's keep it simple, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're not going to talk about eight copies or... Well, wheat has six copies. Potatoes have four copies. We're just going to say the full complement and half the complement and call it a day. So moving on. So that's one of the steps that needs to be figured out. So how can we get a sexually reproducing plant to have the full set of the full complement of chromosomes in the egg cell? Then what you need to do is have that egg cell develop into an embryo without being fertilized. Right. So none of those triggers, right? None of the triggers that would normally say time to divide, time to make a new organism. None of those are going to be there unless you have the male gamete. Exactly, right? And if it was fertilized, you'd end up with too many chromosomes. Oh, yeah. Scientists have found genes that help them do both of these things. So in the first instance, they found mutations in genes that when you add those mutations into sexual plants, they create egg cells and sperm cells that have the full number of chromosomes. So that's there. Then there's another gene. Well, there actually is several genes, but one gene that seems to work very well called baby boom. When you turn that gene on in an egg cell, it will develop without any fertilization. Okay. So those have been kind of pinned down, elucidated, whatever cell bio term you wanted to use. And then they're being introduced into these crop plants, at least experimentally. How's that process going? You know, are we seeing some success in getting rice or wheat to make these clones of hybrids? Rice is the plant where a lot of progress has been made. And several groups have done this. In one instance, it's worked out quite well. You create these mutations 
and you get clonally reproducing rice. And most recently, they've shown that you introduce these mutations into hybrid rice, right? That's what we started out talking about. It's got all those advantages. You introduce these mutations into a type of hybrid rice, and it will reproduce clonally. So the seeds, 95% of these seeds will have exactly the genetics of the hybrid rice parent. Okay, so in the lab, this has been done. In a dish, this has been done. But how soon is it going to get into the hands of farmers? And the greenhouse. <laughs> they've, they've done it in the greenhouse. And the greenhouse, yes. The next step after showing that you can create healthy, normal plants in the greenhouse is to put them out into nature and see if they can deal with those stresses. So that's a step that still needs to take place. Now, commercialization, right? They still have to optimize the plant. It's not producing as many seeds as the hybrid. They are clonal, but it's not, for whatever reason, it's not producing as many seeds as the regular plant. You have to fix that because farmers don't want to harvest less grain than they did the year before. The seeds are not just for reproduction, they're for eating. Exactly. Can you go into a little bit of, you know, what the advantage would be to having these hybrid seeds that reproduce clonally? So what would happen if, you know, I bought these seeds and I put them in my garden and they're so vigorous and then they can just, they'll just reproduce indefinitely. They don't need, they don't need another of their species. They can just, and they'll always be as good. You'll keep getting the same thing. And they've, I can't remember, is it eight generations, 10 generations, right? So they're keeping an eye on them just to make sure nothing, no surprises happen. But so far, it does seem like you will get the same plant over and over again. Is that going to put the seed companies out of business? You know, farming's very complicated. So farmers who are using all the latest methods and tractors and tools, they will go to the seed company because their job is growing the plants. It's not producing the seed. And it doesn't make sense ah. for them to take on that as a sideline business because growing high-performing seeds with very good quality, that's a sophisticated business. And seeds, for farmers who are using all the latest tools and technology, seeds are often coated to perform better. And in the short term, for most seed companies, this will benefit them. Making it easier will reduce the price of the seed, which will benefit the farmers. There are other ways in which this could, in the long term, help breeders create new varieties also. And distribute them, right? You don't have to keep making hybrids over and over again. You just have hybrids. You have hybrids, right. Forever. Yes. Very cool. Thank you so much, Eric. Really nice talking with you again. Eric Stock said is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the feature story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with Trolls Pank Arbel about the history of kissing. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org 
today. Why did people start kissing? Have they always kissed for love? Where did kissing originate? This Week in Science, Trolls Pank Arbol wrote a commentary piece on the history of romantic kissing, asking the question, can we figure out when and where it originated, and if the start of romantic kissing can be linked to changes in disease transmission. Welcome to the Science Podcast, Trolls. Thank you very much. This is such an interesting topic, and apparently there's a big debate in the literature about when kissing originated, particularly romantic or sexual kissing. Some say the oldest evidence is from India. What's the evidence there and where else might we find some evidence for older kissing? Yeah, so the evidence from India, when I started looking into the material, I quickly realized that it's dated to around 1500 BCE. But the problem is that there are actually no manuscripts from India that originates from that time precisely. So they're always dated backwards, you might say, on the basis of style and grammar and the like. So that's one problem. Another issue that I quickly discovered due to my field, I'm an astrologist, so I study uh, ancient Mesopotamia. That's the regions that today cover, for example, Iraq and Syria. And I quickly discovered that we have material that's older than 1500 BC. And that It's been known for a long time in the literature in my field. The problem is that my field rarely disseminates this to outsiders. When you say you have evidence that dates back to older time periods, what kinds of evidence are there from this region? For example, we have from around 1800 BC or something like this, a clay plaque, as it's called. It's a little uh, depiction of a scene of a couple lying in a bed where they're actually engaged in lovemaking and kissing. So that's a very clear example. That is definitely romantic kissing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And uh, going back further, we have written material that states that, for example, gods are kissing in relation to intercourse, and that's dated to roughly 2500 BCE. So this is written accounts. Yes, so they're written with what is called cuneiform writing. It's a script that originated in uh, ancient Iraq. It was invented in the southern part of Iraq around 3200 BCE, and it's possibly the oldest uh, script in the world. And it was used throughout the Middle East until around 100 into the Common Era or something like that. It's in competition with Egypt for the oldest written language. Oh, yes, indeed. And we discuss this often. (laughs) (laughs) What do they say about kissing in these very old tablets? In the beginning, it's not very informative because it is mentioned in relation to to intercourse, but it's often in in passing. When we get down to after 2000 BCE, then the accounts get more elaborate. We learn, for example, that it's used very much in relation to romantic activities. We find examples where a wife was almost led astray by a kiss from a a man she was not married to, for example. We also have an example where an uh, unmarried woman swear to avoid kissing and having sexual relations with a specific man, for example. So there are some clear examples that kissing was something that people did throughout society. Right. And they restricted it. They cared about who was doing it and who wasn't doing it. Yeah. And that's the next part, because they also seem to have had a sort of social regulation in the sense that the people who were not married 
were perhaps not meant to engage in this sort of kissing. And at the same time, it was not preferably seen on the streets. It was meant to be kept at home among married couples. So interesting. So we're making a kind of a distinction here between this romantic kissing and kissing your kid or kissing a friend when you greet them. You know, were those distinctions very clear either in this writing that we're talking about or in other ancient societies? In ancient Mesopotamia, there seems to have been a clear difference in the sense that you had your romantic kissing, but you also had kisses related to friendship of, for example, a display of submission. That's mostly kissing the ground, for example, kissing someone's feet. But that's definitely attested in a lot of sources because we have so many uh, people and rulers trying to subjugate each other in some of these sources. Let's turn now to the link with disease transmission. It kind of seems like that link being called out and people trying to pin it down is what's brought up this debate about when kissing originated. Can you, can you draw out what, what's going on with that? There was a recent study that had looked at the herpes virus in especially uh, European human skeletons from the common era, so from 253 to 1700 in the common era. And they had found through the study of ancient DNA a shift in these lines of herpes virus. And they attributed this shift to the introduction of an additional route of transmission that they suggested in the study sort of vaguely, but in the press material very clearly that it had to do with the introduction of kissing as a new practice. <laughs> So yeah, we're here we are 300 in the common era and people in Europe are just learning about romantic kissing. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, uh, because what we definitely could see in these ancient sources is that, so we have large parts of the Middle East, we also have ancient Egypt, and we also have ancient India, where we can see that romantic kissing is flourishing, <laughs> you might say, <laughs> from very early on, from almost the invention of writing. If, if the sources at the invention of writing, actually mentioned stuff like this, they would probably also have listed it. But sadly, they're mostly just administrative. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems to have been a very common practice, you might say, and very, very widely used. Absolutely. I wanted to touch on one more piece of evidence that you discuss in your commentary piece, and that's sculptures that even predate written language that seem to show kissing. These sculptures, it's a bit unclear if they actually represent romantic or sexual kissing, but they are definitely couples like embracing or engaged in lovemaking somehow. So they seem to hint at the fact that something is going on where this might also have occurred. While researching for the piece, we also noticed that it had been suggested that there had been some saliva exchange between Neanderthals and humans some, what, 100,000 years ago. And again, it had been suggested that this had to do perhaps with romantic sexual kissing or lip kissing, at least, if nothing else. And I found that quite interesting because if one could actually somewhat speculative push the boundaries that far back, it would certainly predate a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, first of all, we're looking for kissing in, in every kind of evidence here, which is great. But second of all, you know, it really does kind of imply that it's unlikely that kissing didn't hit Europe until 300 CE. No, and that's the thing, because one of the hypotheses that have been in relation to the study of the kiss is that, well, it was 
used in India from 1500 BC. And then at some point, perhaps with Alexander the Great, so we're down in the third century BC, he would have brought it back to Greece. But we can see that wouldn't make any sense because it's so widely distributed way before this. Yeah. So you wouldn't expect it to have one point of origin. It must have had several multiple points of origin. And the question is, if many of these ancient societies, they must have known about it, even if they didn't practice it. Very interesting. Let's go back to the cuneiform and in Mesopotamia for a moment here. What did they think about kissing and disease transmission? Were they worried about that back then? What we can see is that there doesn't seem to have been a link between kissing and the disease transmission in the ancient sources to some extent. Of course, there are these things that if you kiss someone who's not meant to be sexually active, for example, like a priestess of some sort, then it was believed to deprive the kisser of the ability to speak. That is, of course, perhaps an exaggeration, but there are some of these, you could say, cultic restraints or warnings that might signal that there had been some idea that kissing broadly might affect you poorly. But of course, they had a completely different worldview back then. They didn't see contagion as we do. Mm -hmm. Their medical system wasn't based on microscopic organisms and stuff like that. No, their medical system was entirely different. And it uh, it had a lot of demons. Uh, it had a lot of ritual manipulation in, in the way that they in, interacted with this world. That, of course, didn't make it any less real for them. But it's an entirely different way of conceptualizing the world, which also means that we can't expect to find a correlation like this. So what made you interested in studying these languages and these cultures? Originally, when I, I started studying, I just found it very fascinating that we were able to read some of the first thoughts that people have written down in world history. Yeah. And when I started to get into especially medical history, which is really what I have been working mostly on with ancient Mesopotamia as my basis, I quickly realized that when we're dealing with one of the earliest medicals, what we might call sciences, at least ancient science, uh, and and the way that they try to formulate this, the way that they conceptualize diseases. It's so interesting to see how early on people try to combine language to make it into some sort of, of learned discipline. Why do you think it's so important that people better understand this deep history of humanity? I think it's important because there are often a lot of sources that we have that contribute significantly to our understanding of crucial questions. For example, a question such as this, uh, the kiss and its effect on disease transmission. That's relevant not only historically, but also anthropologically. And it might even have wider effects once we get the ball rolling on these scientific discussions. And we do have a lot of material because people wrote on clay. And because they wrote on clay, we have so many sources available about all sorts of things, and people rarely know about them. And that's because it's been such a huge task for astrologists to just publish this material and make it available. We're still not done with this task, basically, because we're so relatively few people studying this field. But I think it's really valuable to make it available and uh, to show that we have a lot of sources from these very ancient periods that might actually contribute to ongoing discussions. And as people have 
referred to it before, since the invention of writing and down until the Greek period, it's basically when we look at written history, it's the first half of history, you might almost say, <laughs> and people tend to completely ignore it. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. So it sounds like it's still exciting times for such uh, ancient history. Yes. And I definitely hope uh, we will be able to bring uh, other exciting things into scientific debates in the future. All right. Thank you so much, Trolls. Yeah, but thank you. Trolls Pank Arbel is an assistant professor in Assyriology in the Department of Cross-Cultural and Regional Studies at the University of Copenhagen. You can find a link to the commentary piece we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Kresge, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.